it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.
Hello. One, two, one, two. Hey, what's up? You're here. Hey, can you hear me? Yep. Oh, great. We're yeah. live. We're live. All right. All right. Glad to have you guys back. It's been a while. Feels like forever. Yeah, it's been it's good to come here again as well. I mean, we recently had the stream. Well, you together, and I, yeah, you and yeah. I did. That's right. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while for me. I've been more working on the on the French side of things with them. I'm, I'm still in touch with uh, with everybody, and uh, and yeah, we've got we've got some projects. Uh, yeah, so everything's doing great. Cool. Do you want to go ahead and get started, or do you want to go into some of those projects? Tell us what you're up to, or just get into it. Oh, and on the French side, we um, we we've been working with uh, with some local monasteries, uh, doing some crowdfunding. We've uh, we've made actually the first ever icon of some local saints. So yeah, beautiful in Byzantine style and all. Oh, cool. Uh, we also started uh, a YouTube channel, and it. For now, we're just making like mega reviews of some church fathers. So we've got uh, five hour documentary on Irenaeus of Leons. We've got uh, probably it's going to be more than 10 hours on Clement of Rome. So he's just studying everything, historical context. He's studying um, linguistics, um, theology proper, everything. So is that is that only in French or is it going to be both English and French? Uh, it's in French, but the translator too is getting better by the day. So that, okay. that's the question we're asking ourselves: uh, Should we do a English production? But uh, for now, it's going to be in French. But over time, resources are going to get translated, uh, whether by yourselves or automatically. Okay, cool. Well, uh, yeah, re remind me afterwards, and I'll put the link to that channel in here. <clears throat> um, sure. All right, so today uh, David and Sneck are joining me because, as some of you may or may not know, the Vatican has recently approved of yet another Chieti, Chieti-style document. It's known as the Alexandria document, and so we're going to kind of talk about both of those. And once again, we see a lot of admissions, and in my understanding, my assessment is that, uh, you know, post-Vatican II, we had a lot of uh, attempts at reconciling uh, tensions, I think, between the theology of Vatican I and the theology of Vatican II. And this, in part, led to a lot of looking at Eastern theology. You know, people like von Balthasar and other Roman Catholic theologians felt that they could in some way give breath and life back to the Eastern, quote, lung of the church. However, this proved to be, in my view, really difficult and, and, and as I said, in a lot of tension with what the documents of Vatican I actually say. And so we have these meetings and these documents produced by these committees, which are papally approved. That's another key point that I think Snack's probably going to get to. I'm just sort of setting the stage, and I'll let you guys uh, make your points however you want. Now, I've got a bunch of screenshots and things that I, I saw in these documents that I can pull up here when we're ready to get to them. But I think that, again, both of these documents are tremendous in their admissions, and it's not just because of on Balthazar. There's also, uh, you know, Fo uh, Dvornik, who wrote the Phocian Schism. This was a, one of the first key texts on sort of uh, admitting and get, granting a lot of concessions to the East. Uh, Yves Congar's uh, 900 Years Together, after 900 Years, right? These are texts that made so many concessions that, 
you know, a lot of Roman Catholics will be like, well, look, you guys are getting all your points made. Um, so why don't you just go ahead and join us? Well, the problem is not, are you conceding our points? And the problem is that this is a system that has already dogmatized a certain view that such that these admissions are admitting that the Vatican one position is not correct. That's the key issue here. And so, uh, Whoever wants to, you guys go ahead and uh, take it take it away wherever you want to start. Um, yeah, yeah uh, go ahead. I just want to make a short comment. Yeah. Um, so the point that you made about the Roman Catholic Church just saying, you know, we're going to give you these concessions as long as you accept papal supremacy. I mean, in this very document, in the Alexandrian document, in 3.11, uh, this document already admits that uh, because it says that uh, Pope Leo XIII's letter, Orientalum Dignitas, is basically, and uh, Praclera Gratulationis in 1895, it says that it invited all the Orthodox to union with the Church of Rome on the condition that they recognize the papal primacy of jurisdiction. And what it previously said is that it recognized the strict, distinct rights of all of the Eastern churches and gave respect to Eastern traditions. So we're basically seeing here in 3.11 that the only thing here is it doesn't matter. You know, the doctrine doesn't matter. The practices, none of these things matter. The only thing that matters, according to this document, according to the Roman Catholic Church, is as long as you lick the papal boot, all, all is fine, basically. And that's the viewpoint of the Roman Catholic Church. And again, before Snake moves on, I also want to make this key point that cha uh, chapter five, I think it says the quiet part out very loud. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church essentially, in some sense, thinks that it has lost some senses of what it calls synodality. And the, the Orthodox Church is the church that has that synodality. And so there's this attitude of, as you said, like, you know, the Western Church and the Eastern Church being actually just one church of two lungs, and they're supposed to be reunited. From an Orthodox standpoint, this is just, we see this as an admission that the Roman Catholic Church itself is recognizing that it is a defunct church of some sorts, but we don't admit that. We actually do believe, you know, we have primacy, we have synodality, we have both of them working in conjunction already within the Orthodox Church uh, that is apostolic, and the Roman Catholic Church itself admits that its doctrines are not apostolic by admitting that papal primacy in its own terms is doctrinally developed, and I believe they say this in uh, 1.5, they, that they admit that Roman primacy is doctrine developed. And doctrine development in Roman Catholic system is basically them admitting that this doctrine is not apostolic, it just logically develops to its logical conclusion. That's kind of the viewpoint of the Newmanite understanding of doctrine development. So these are the things that I want to point out. Yeah, um, I think this document is really interesting. So of course, the scope of it, um, Rome is considering a lot. And as David said, I think the point for them is to is to get people to join because, uh, at, you know, they just want people to recognize the Pope in some capacity. I think that's, a, that's a, the name of the game. Um, but still, like these admissions, uh, they're, they're at least throw a lot of apologists, uh, uh, apologetic, you know, Roman apologetic into the fire. Some of them... Uh, some of them it really looked like it. It was written by by one of us guys. Like some of the points looked like I don't know, like Ubi Petrus or ourselves could have written it, because it specifically answers arguments we are seeing all the time. Uh, you know, uh, the Orthodox did not have councils. The Orthodox Church did not retain a traditional position. You will see that even in the time of Peter the Great, even at the darkest time of the Church of Russia in terms of ecclesial power, 
they still say, well, they retain the synodality that is antique. Um, I think I think you will see we'll see that as well. Uh, at some point, they try to muddy the water a little bit. They try to, for example, uh, do not place the Council of Constance as a display of synodality uh, because that would be too damning. So they're, they're still retaining things, but as long as the Pope is safe, it's all right. Um, so yeah, this document is going to be important, and we need to stress that this document, if it is like Kitty, it's going to be part of the magisterium at some point. Kitty was cited by the Pope. So I can already see our opponents, you know, doing curls, uh, you know, just, just, just thinking and uh, uh, going back and forth. Um, but ultimately, it is an official position of the church. Yeah, and I think I think we this is a rather short read. You should like probably post it right away, so people can can have a look. Uh, and it's, it's yeah, really interesting. It addresses many of the points, and I would say that outside of the part that criticizes Constance for being uh, too secular, which which is a bit weird because. This criticism can be extended to any other council before, uh, before the schism, and the la the later part that tries to equivocate, um, um, it tries to make an equivalence between the Orthodox councils of the second millennium and the um, the very ecumenistic statements. So, so that's funny because we would say that, for example, Balaman is not is not a universal ecumenical. Uh, binding decision, but Rome here says that it is. <laughs> so that's quite funny. We're gonna we, we're gonna we're gonna cover that. But apart from that, it's it's a pretty well summarized history of compared ecclesiology for the second millennium. I think someone who just wants to to dive into church history can easily pick up this uh, this text. Yeah, exactly. And uh, first thing I noticed at the beginning, early on in the document, it it says <clears throat> despite. This is 1.5. At that time, despite the doctrinal development of Roman primacy, synodality was still evident. So we have, again, a kind of an admission here early on in the document that uh, prior to the 12th century, and this will get into the period of the Gregorian reforms and all that, it notes that uh, Roman primacy developed. So we have an admission now of what appears to be the, the Newman doctrine uh, of development but when i read uh pastor eternus and when i read satis cognitum i don't see development i see no this was always from the earliest days of the church the case in fact that's i think the first few paragraphs of leo the 13th satis cognitum so how is it the case that it's always there uh it was always clear in the fathers i mean the wording of satis cognitum is very very strong it does not leave or give any place for quote development and yet we see here early on this document that, yeah, it's an, it's an admission of development. And it was the primacy of Rome, it seems to say, it was kind of evolving uh, parallel to synodality. And that both were still evident at this time period prior to the, uh, I guess, the 10th and 11th century. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, price line. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's that's a big thing. Like, basically, the argument that, oh, Matthew 16, 18 equals uh, Pope of Rome with supremacy of the church. The idea is that this is clear as day. No. Like, this is, this is a dead argument now because it requires an extra step. It requires the idea of doctrinal development, which is something else that needs to be proven. So all the arguments, you know, oh, um, Matthew 16, 18, clear as day. Uh, no, no, you, you require a specific exegesis and, and a specific doctrine of development to prove it now. Um, the argument that oh, uh, Vatican I papacy since the time of the apostle, that's done. So that's from the get-go, that's, that's a huge admission. And then we have another admission, which is a point that we made, which is that the uh, selection of <clears throat> of bishops uh, in Rome itself actually underwent a revolution. It says, during the 12th century, the role of the Roman Synod was replaced with the consistory, meaning the cardinals. <clears throat> now, I mentioned this many times because this is a revolution, not just in the governance of the church as a whole, but we begin to see in the Roman church itself an alteration in how we see, we get a bishop of rome and the reason that matters is that there were no cardinals okay there were there was there was no cardinalate no consistory uh in the, in the first 11 centuries and so the document is saying yes we get this transition to a roman cardinal system in rome itself which leads to the election of the roman bishop now somebody might say well but that's not that big of a deal but the, pre, the, the prior way that bishops and metropolitans were elected was not this way. So if Rome itself can revolutionize the way that, uh, you know, the apostolic canons, for example, talk about the metropolitan or talk about the first, the protos, this document will talk about the protos, right? If Rome can re uh, revolutionize that, then it only makes sense that Rome could then revolutionize the way that all the bishops in the world are chosen. And so... Eventually, it becomes the case that no, Rome now chooses, chooses and approves all of the bishops in the world. But this is admitting that it wasn't that way prior to that. So again, it's another revolution. And then we have to, then every Roman Catholic apologist comes back and says, yeah, but see, it, it evolves, it develops. We need this development, this evolution, because it's, it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a seed that grows into a tree. Okay, then it's not, like Sneck said, then it's not clear as day in Matthew 16 then it's not something that was always there that, that uh, the popes could have called on, like Ibarra says. It was always there. They just didn't always have to use it. They could have, but didn't. Okay, so they chose for seven, eight centuries not to use the most obvious, effective, efficient, pragmatic, clear way to settle doctrinal disputes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and another point... Uh, in regards to this is also that in 1.3 it talks about and it basically admits and this is already admitted by the Roman Catholic Church itself but it's nice to see them reaffirming the fact that part of what allowed for this doctrinal development to kickstart at the time is due to the forgeries and the false decretals and the donation of Constantine and, and things of that nature uh, helped develop the Roman Catholic Church into becoming what it is today in some sense and this we see we see a lot of Roman Catholic apologists trying to downplay these things, but the the Roman Catholic Church itself admits that these played a huge role in uh, the further developments and the controversies that surrounded it. Another point that I want to make, maybe uh, it's kind of like a change of the subject, but in one point eight, what I found very interesting is that the Roman Catholic Church 
actually admits that it's schismatic because they admit that in the in the Crusades they've established parallel jurisdictions contrary to the Orthodox bishoprics and the Apostolic sees. They did this in various different churches. One of them being Cyprus, and they admit that Cyprus had autocephaly. Its autocephaly was recognized in the Third Ecumenical Council, right? And they're basically saying, yeah, we established these parallel jurisdictions in the 11th century after the schism with the Greek church. Um, setting up parallel jurisdictions is the definition of schismatic activity. And so it's quite ironic that it's the Orthodox that are referred to as schismatic when it's really the Roman Catholic Church that established parallel jurisdictions. Right. Yeah, just to be clear. So, so I'll, I'll, this admission is interesting. I'll read this yeah. point. I'll read let me read one point three real quick because like David said, it's a great admission. It reads, I've got it on the screen here. I'm trying to get it to where everything fits just right. But it says Consequently, a more judicial ecclesiology was developed. The false decretals and the false donation of Constantine which were mistakenly supposed to be authentic, suppressed the central figure of the Pope in the, <clears throat> excuse me, stressed the central figure of the Pope in the Latin church. The new uh, mendicant orders in the 13th century, such as Franciscans and Dominicans, exempted from papal episcopal authority, pro prompted a conception of the papacy as being entrusted with pastoral care of the whole church. Now, again, this is like, like Snack said, this is almost like an Ubi level, uh, document, like it, with all the admissions that it has in it. Oh yeah. Like ev everybody gets mad when we mentioned the forgeries, but, uh, that's not us here. Uh, and by the way, I'll let you go snack. But so the other point is, uh, that I always like to bring up is, well, if the papacy was entrusted with this special divine charism, as Vatican one says, then how come it took so long for the papacy to recognize that these were fake and forged documents? Why were they having to back up their claims on something that, yes, later was discovered to be fraudulent and and, and, and were forgeries? Uh, but I thought the charism and guidance of the Holy Spirit would have protected them from knowing that these were completely forged documents. And somebody might say, well, but they're not protected in charism for everything. It's only faith and morals. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that the issue here is faith and morals, right? The governance of the church and whether it has a supreme earthly head or not. Yeah, I mean, that that's that's a really interesting point that, that brought up because um, the question is not like whether, like today, many many Roman Catholic apologists would say, well, they they use this, but they didn't they didn't need to like they had other better documents, but these were seen as a as the strongest one. And for example, they couldn't just come up with uh, Matthew sixteen eighteen to to the Byzantines because, of course, they had the, the same vision as us that Peter is a is a Catholic, meaning a universal figure that applies to the entire episcopate. So, of course, they had to rely on uh, on, on on judicial uh, civil civic argument, and that's why the the later part about Constance falls a little bit flat for me. Uh, and we're gonna see it. A bit later, I want to go back on the idea of cardinalate. So this is really interesting because, as you said, um, the Roman position is that the Pope is uh, is a bishop but has a special charism within the episcopacy, and that the power of all of the bishops come and is legitimized by the communion with him and the approval by him. For example, today you cannot consecrate a bishop uh, in the Roman Church without papal approval. Um, so that's really interesting because if that if God's plan was to to set up this charism really clearly, why is there a possibility even for it to happen? And the cardinal it comes into that because before that, the Pope was elected just like 
any other patriarch, meaning by his direct suffragan uh, synod. So, yes, great point. Still, it works. There's some variety. Some of them cast lots, uh, things like that. But the idea that the cardinalate gets installed, uh, which was rejected by the Byzantine, by the way. So you can see when Ember, Cardinal Ember, the man who made the schism, comes to Constantinople, is received only as a deacon. <laughs> he's not received as a um, a presbyter or, or an episcopos or something like this, and he gets really pissed about it. Uh, it's just quite quite funny historically. But the establishment of this cardinalate means that the Pope can pick from wherever he wants people that he that he likes. That is that's a universal solidification of power. So saying that this is not historically reflected in the structure and election of the papacy, I think that's 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 already uh, showing a shift, and it's quite clear about this. I would like to talk about the um, the fact that they recognize the canon that makes Cyprus autocephalous. How many times have you heard, "Hey, autocephaly doesn't make any sense"? Exactly. Yes. I bring it up all the time to Roman Catholic apologists in the last year or so, and uh, yeah, it's I, all I hear is yeah, that's insane. That doesn't exist. In fact, a lot of Roman Catholic apologists actually use the very existence of autocephalous churches as somehow something that makes us ridiculous and not the Catholic Church. That's how deluded these people are. Not recognizing that the Council of Ephesus granted autocephaly. Yeah, and on that point, I want to read a, a part of 1.8 to kind of give an idea to people what I'm referring to specifically. It says, as a result of the First Crusade, a Latin patriarch and a Latin hierarchy were established in Antioch and in Jerusalem, instead of or parallel to the Greek patriarchates. It says the same about Cyprus and various different other bishoprics. Now, this is a very crucial point because according to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, in fact, we do have sacraments, we do have holy orders. And so from the Roman Catholic perspective, actually the, the Orthodox Church at Antioch, at Jerusalem, and the other patriarchates that were established by the Orthodox Church were already, you know, actual, you know, jurisdictions and authorities according to the perspective of the Roman Catholic Church. So even if you're a Roman Catholic, even if you believe that the Roman Catholic Church is a true church, even within this logic, the Roman Catholic Church, by definition, is doing something that is schismatic, right? Schism is setting up parallel jurisdictions and authorities to the already existing authority and jurisdiction. The Roman Catholic Church has done this historically, and it basically says, yeah, I guess we are schismatic at the end of the day. And this can be further shown, especially today, by three different patriarchs. You know, the, the fact that there are three different patriarchs at Antioch within the Roman Catholic Church when it's the Roman Catholic apologists that say, you know, oh, you have all of these bishops in America, and it's like, which Orthodox church? I mean, you have that issue in Antioch. <laughs> you have that exact issue with the Patriarch of Antioch. You have three different bishops at Antioch. Uh, that is impossible to occur unless the Roman Catholic Church is a schismatic church. It's almost so like, yeah. It's, it's strange to see this admission. It's almost like Snack said, like, uh, not just Ubi, but like, were the people at this conference literally just uh, replying to all the things that all of us have been saying for the last five years? It's like, and, and, well, like and you see, they even go further. The next point talks about the Fourth Crusade. <laughs> That's not even theological, but if you if you dare bring the Fourth Crusade, everybody gets mad because oh, you're not a you're not a Byzantine, so you shouldn't be mad about this. But we'll we'll see what, how it's significant. But yeah, all the points are covered. It's great. It's just a start. This life is going to be good. Okay, I've got 1.8 up. Uh, do you want to go into 1.9 with the crusade there? Yeah, sure. You want to you go over 1.9? or Because I have some things written about 1.9 as well that are 
that are important. Like um, the main thing about the Fourth Crusade and the usual argument that you see with this is that, oh, you know, what about the Latin massacre in eight, you know, 1185 and, and so on and so forth. Um, I think a big difference between that is the Fourth Crusade was papally sanctioned. Now, people will point out, oh, well, the Pope regretted, right? He condemned this event, but uh, actually a uh, Pope not so innocent. Uh, and Shesensky notes this in his book in Filioque, in his documents called Reductio Grecorum. This is his Epistola 7.154. You can find this in Petrologia Latina, uh, volume 215. He actually says that, well, at the end of the day, the Greeks deserved it. Right. In a very in a very simplistic manner, he basically says, well, the Greeks deserved it because they're schismatics and heretics. So um, even though, you know, the things that he didn't endorse, the things that happened in the Fourth Crusade, eventually he used it to his own advantage. And guess what? He set up a parallel, you know, the Roman Catholic Church set up a parallel jurisdiction in Constantinople. So they continued their schismatic activities even in the 13th century. And, and again, this is an important point because it's not just they didn't just have these wrong ideas in the 11th century. No, they were continuing schismatic activities even in the 13th century. And this document is admitting that. And that's a big admission. Yeah. So that, that's a great thing about the Fourth Crusade. The Fourth Crusade obviously was a terrible historical event. But uh, I mean, you're American, you're Turkish, I'm French. It doesn't affect us uh of course, like personally or in your blood. I mean, you, you, well, you, David literally lives in Istanbul, so maybe, maybe it does affect him in an ancestral, uh, ancestral sense. It doesn't affect us in an ancestral sense, but it's it it is affecting the church. Uh, and I think I think is this this is not a clear reference or direct reference, but it is implied to the reduction Grecorum to the idea that yes, the papacy did not sanction the crusade, but it greatly took advantage of it afterwards. It's, uh, I mean, maybe you should read a passage of the reduction. It compares the, the, the Orthodox Church to a rebellious daughter that was quelled by, by providence of the uh, of, of this village. So, of course, this sets up the idea that coercion uh, became the norm in the in, in the East, that, that all these, that many of these documents that tried to reconciliate both parts and so on were made under, under coercion uh, of, uh, of, of, of the West against the weakened east so uh it is significant in an ecclesial sense and and the classic argument is to say don't you dare bring up uh the fourth crusade the pope condemned it and that's it no here it, it is clearly showing that it had ecclesial repercussions so that's another argument that just away yeah those are great points um do you want me to bring up a different section or do you want to keep going with this I mean, uh, point by point, maybe we should read the, the part for the, for the viewers. Uh, so it says, yeah, I'll read it. During the 12th century, the role of the Roman... Oh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong point. Wrong point. Uh, to about the, 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 the Crusade part, is that what you're saying? The Fourth Crusade I mean, resulted in the plundering of Constantinople and the establishment of parallel Latin hierarchies in the remaining ancient seas of the Greek church. Though he discouraged the Venetians from conquering Constantinople, Pope Innocent III consequently appointed a Latin patriarch in Constantinople as well as in Alexandria. Hold on a second. Yeah, here we go. Um, I got something in my eye. <clears throat> the decisions of the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 were imposed particularly on the churches of Jerusalem and Cyprus. The principle whereby the Greeks could keep their liturgical rituals but had to accept the Bishop of Rome as their head and commemorate him was practice especially in cyprus 
cross-reference the Latin synods of Limassol of 1220 and from Augusta of 1222 and the Bola Cypria of Pope Alexander IV in 1260. In many such cases, the Greek clergy consisted from now on as belonging to the Latin church were forced to participate in Latin liturgical actions. The atmosphere worsened with the polemical attitudes of the political attitude of the theologians denouncing the Eastern usages of the errors of the Greeks or the errors of the schismatics. Which, by the way, Contra Era (laughs) Gricorum is uh, based on forgeries. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, much of it is. And uh, the next point that I that I had, it, it talks about Saints Philotius, Kokinos, and and others. Uh, it kind of makes a statement about recognizing um, the so-called Palamites, which I don't think it's a. It's, I don't think they just said it just to say something because especially today in the Roman Catholic Church, though historically St. Gregor Palamas was seen as this villain and, and so on and so forth. Today in the Roman Catholic Church, he is recognized as, as a saint in the Eastern Catholic Churches. And even Pope John Paul II refers to him as a holy man, as a saint. Um, and so this reflects a very big shift in the Roman Catholic attitude towards the East. Well, one of the many examples of it, uh, I think 1.11 very much, I mean, I'll read 1.11 for you guys. It, it says, During the second millennium in the East, the conciliar institution functioned according to the canonical principles of Apostolic Canon 34. Where the Patriarch of Constantinople as the protos and the bishops present in Constantinople participated in sessions of the Endemusa Synod. Through the Endemusa Synod, the Church expressed a form of permanent synodality in which the Patriarchs of the East present in Constantinople or their representatives and other bishops were convoked by the Patriarch of Constantinople to make synodal decisions. So this is an admission that the Orthodox ecclesiological system is apostolic in ancient. They're basically admitting that, and, and you know, chapter five is already trying to make an argument by making that admission with the whole like, you know, two lungs of the same church kind of, kind of language and, and idea, sorry. But I think it's very important that we recognize this admission because, again, this is a Roman Catholic Church admitting that the Orthodox ecclesiological structure is patristic, it's ancient, it's apostolic, and it's canonical. Whereas it admits that some of the things that the Roman Catholic Church did in history were uncanonical and it went against the ancient canons. Uh, so as as Snake and Jay has pointed out, I mean, this might as well have been written by any of us because these are the arguments that, that, that we have been making for years. By the way, you see it. I've got that right there on the screen. So, and I think that this one, uh, Absolute Canon 34 is a big admission in, in the Key 80 document too, yeah, right? Because you already mentioned yeah. it. So uh, just for people who don't know, because I know there are some viewers that might just, you know, come to Orthodoxy, just learn a little bit about it. Apostolic Canon 34 is significant. So it's part of a collection of canon the usually agreed upon date is that it's uh, it's from 4th century Syria. So I don't know if they admit that it's apostolic, but the debate concerning the canons, uh, the, the Roman church historically did not accept 
the collection of canons after, up until I think 20. Uh, at, at least they didn't accept the full collection of the Apostolic Canon. And this is part of the later collection of the Apostolic Canons. And that's and that's already mentioned in the previous document in Kieti, that this was a principle. And Apostolic Canon 34 is just a pearl of, of um, early Orthodox ecclesiology. It establishes uh, the relation between a primate, so a first, uh, but strictly restricts the idea that this primate has a supremacy. It says that the church is organized with uh, a head of bishops for, uh, for nations. So that's also another argument. You know, oh, you have national churches. Well, you have fourth century document within the Roman Empire that says that um, the church can be organized by nations. Exactly. So interesting. Yeah, I've made uh, this point many times, and it's like this, don't you understand, this is the ancient synodality view, is that uh, the the bishops would be chosen in this way, and then you would have a protos amongst them. It's from the it's from the from these ancient canons. Yeah, and 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 basically, this protos is not supreme. He has yes. a primacy. Exactly. That, that, that the, the the synod can still oppose him. The synod can oppose him. The synod can oppose his decision. He derives his authority from the synod, but the synod needs to obey him in as much as they are in and. Let's make one last point before you go on, because every Roman Catholic will say, yeah, but it's not talking about the Bishop of Rome, he doesn't count. No, there's never an exception, you see. There's never the, this, by the way, this applies to everyone except the Bishop of Rome, and that's how they treat every canon and all the councils that goes against the Vatican One view, is they just say, well, but that's not counting, that, that Rome doesn't count in that. It never makes the concession that, well, this is for everybody except Rome. Yeah, I mean, you can even, you can even say that it applies to Rome in as much as um, as it shows what the primacy is understood at that time. So I'm just going to read it because it's and it, Well, it also applies to Rome. Yeah, please do. But it also applies to Rome by the fact that the document just admitted that the Roman way of selecting the Roman bishop changed in the uh, 12th century. Yeah. So Canon 34 says, the bishops of every nation must acknowledge him who is first among them and account him as their head and do nothing of consequence without his consent. But each may do these things only which concern his own parish and the country places which belong to him, uh, to it. But neither let him who is first do anything without the consent of all, for so there will be unanimity and God will be glorified through the Lord in the Holy Spirit. So that's really good because it shows that the, the primarial head has a real power but the, this power cannot go against his own synod. So this canon is a proof that we have, um, from uh, you know, we we believe them to be apostolic. But if, even if you want to be critical about it, from the fourth century onward, a very clear definition of church relations that include both synodality and primacy. And when uh, and when a bit later, it will say that even under the Ottoman Turks and even under uh, Peter the Great, which reforms the Russian church like the Lutherans and, and so on, when they say that we retain and we continue to follow this canon, it means that even under all these adverse consequences, the main basis of ecclesiology, which is primacy and synodality, was retained in the Orthodox Church. And yeah. that's, that's great. And uh, on that same point, let's look at what the Kiedi document said. Uh, in section 18 from a few years for, uh, earlier, it says from the first ecumenical council onward, main many questions, major questions regarding faith and canonical order in the church were discussed and resolved by 
appealing to the final authority of the Roman bishop. Oh, wait, no, it doesn't say that. It says by ecumenical councils. Although the bishop of Rome was not personally present at those councils in each uh, of those cases, he was represented by the legates and he agreed with the council's conclusions after the fact. The church's understanding of the criteria for reception as a council being ecumenical developed over the course of the first millennium. For example, prompted by historical circumstances, the Seventh Ecumenical Council of Nicaea II gave a detailed description of the criteria that they understood. The council itself says that the agreement of the symphonia of the heads of the churches in cooperation synergia of the Bishop of Rome and the agreement of all of the other patriarchates. Thus, an ecumenical council must have its proper number in the sequence of ecumenical councils and teaching in accord with previous councils. Thus, reception by the church as a whole has always been the ultimate criteria for the ecumenical nature of a council, for ecumenicity of council. So wait a minute. That is exactly the opposite of what every Roman Catholic apologist says. They say what makes it an ecumenical council is the approval of the Pope ultimately. That is not what this says. <laughs> it, says that it says, no, reception by the church as a whole, which is what orthodoxy always argues, and they always say, then you can't know what a council is because that ain't going to be the whole church, blah, 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 blah. And their own documents say what we say. We, we repeat their documents, and they think that we're being weirdos and crazy. You know, that's what your documents say. That's, that's Chiedi right there in section 18. Yeah, and on that point, I mean, uh, the Roman Catholic system, it, it it isn't any different when it comes to, you know, receptionism, because at the end of the day, the Pope is determined by the same factor, right? Does the church recognize the Pope as a Pope? Well, any decision that the Pope makes is recognized on, the, on that basis, right? So why is Pope Francis the Pope and not an anti-Pope according to the Roman Catholic system? I think even one piece... Uh, 1 Peter 5 was at the website. I mean, they have a they have an article of making this exact argument that it's the reception, that how the Pope is received is 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 how it is verified that the Pope is indeed the Pope. It's the same, it's a very similar logic at the very least. Though I yep. will also add that there's also actual, you know, episcopal um standards that are that are employed, right? That the patriarchs have to accept this in a synodal manner, right? So, so these things are also factored in to understand how the church receives councils and the decisions made by those councils universally as well. So um, there's that point uh, as well. And, and I think that's, I think in a sense, I will say that Alexandra document does for the most part accurately reflect the Orthodox ecclesiological system by re re referring to it as synodality um, for the most part, as I've said. Uh, Snag, did you want to say anything here, or I'll, before I pull up another key eighty uh, section? Um, I mean, yeah, you can you can go to Kitty. I think I think it's important. I think we're gonna cover this a bit later, but um, this is like the the new document has copious examples of Orthodox second millennium these are the papacy binding councils, and it mentioned Kokinos because uh, there's a. Dogmatic civil war in Rome right now. So the neo thomist faction, which was leading at some point, is no longer leading, and and this is a quiet endorsement of the the, the genius of the the Palamites, quote unquote. So yeah, go ahead, Bifkedi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to make one short comment. Um, one of them, one of the councils that it is hinting at, 
in 1.12 at the, the last sentence says that this pro the, the profession of Lyons was rejected by the Church of Constantinople in 1285. It doesn't note the council, but this happened in the Synod of Plaquene, where the Council of Lyons was promptly rejected. Yes. And what happened, what that council did is, in fact, elaborate a orthodox understanding of energetic procession as a counter understanding to certain statements about church fathers, specifically one of St. John Damascus, where he says that the Holy right. Spirit proceeds uh, from the Father through the Son. Uh, the, the council of Blackrene basically exemplified, basically showcased an orthodox theological understanding of the idea of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father through the Son, right? So it is referring, in fact, to another orthodox council that, again, was accepted by all orthodox Christians as an official response against certain Filioque's yes. arguments from the Roman Catholics. And doesn't the document, uh, I think it's the new one, doesn't it admit that the Palamite theological, quote, development was from Maximus and the Cappadocians? <laughs> Which, yeah, like it's, it's, it says it's... Yeah. Let, let, me, let me find it. This is It's uh, in 1.13. Yeah, 1.13. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so 1.10 says, in spite of these trials, so the... the difficulties after after the crusades and all there still were those in the east who cultivated good ecclesial relations and work for the restoration of unity so oh you know we're not the bad schismatic greeks great patriarchs with deep theological understandings such as philotheos kokinos so a disciple of gregory palamas examined the possibility of, con of uh, convoking an ecumenical council that will provide a solution for the division and in point 13, it says, during the 4th century, the Hezekiah controversy provoked by Baalam, a monk of Calabria, arose in the east. The monks of Mount Athos delegated St. Gregory Palamas to answer the challenges of Baalam. During the 4th century, four synods in Constantinople defended the distinction between the essence and the uncreated energy of God, developed by St. Gregory Palamas on the basis of fathers of the church such as St. Basil of Caesarea and St. Maximus the Confessor. These events indi indicate the continuing practice of synodality in the East. That's a wonderful text. So it's saying that, uh, well, uh, Palamas didn't just, just pull this thing by himself. Uh, Balaam was the one who was uh, actually attacking a previous tradition that was held in Mount Athos. Uh, and the Synod of Constantinople were reunited to formulate a dogmatic uh, and binding defense of this doctrine. And this shows that synodality remained in the East. Uh, the text doesn't, doesn't say that synodality was maintained that well in the West. <laughs> so that's really interesting. So, so there yeah, there's a lot of emissions. Councils, we had many. I've got... Thank you. Yeah. It, 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 so I've got it. I finally got that part put, put up on the screen here. So um, you'll notice as Snack read, right, that it's admitting the essence energy debate. It says it was caused by barley, <laughs> provoked by barley. But it note that the energy, uncreated energy distinction is developed by Palamas uh, out of yoga, uh, out of made up theology of the Middle Ages, out of polytheism. No. What would all the Roman Catholics say? All of that nonsense. No, it's it's developed, quote unquote, from who? Cappadocians and Maximus, exactly. Uh, as we always point out. So this is literally what we say. 14th, 15th century, uh, uh, witness a radical change in the political sphere. And I, I want to note this because they're admitting, everybody knows what's in Unum Sanctum, 
right? Unum Sanctum is not just a document that says you have to also, every creature on earth must be subject to uh, the Roman pontiff for salvation. Yes, it says that, and everybody knows that, but that's not all it's saying. It's saying that you must be subject to the Roman pontiff in all in matters temporal. In other words, you have to accept the temporal supremacy of the Roman bishop over all the world as also part of your salvation, you see. It's not just, are you accepting the, uh, quote, Catholic faith to be saved? No, 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 it's the Catholic faith, which includes the universal temporal supremacy of the Roman bishop to be saved, you see. The document is admitting that. It says to reaffirm papal supremacy in the temporal order. So they're admitting that, yes, this this uh, geopolitical earthly papal power, right, is also the the basis for the Western schism of the three popes. Look, this is this is what we bitch about all the time. Wait a minute. So Peter moves his see to France <clears throat> for seventy five years, and I'm supposed to accept that that's all what uh, that's what Jesus intended in the first century was to set up a giant uh, palace in France where the see of Peter's in in Avignon. And why did that happen? Well, it happened because the papacy became a geopolitical historical power tool, right? It's not it's not primarily a thing to adjudicate uh, doctrine. It's the Pope's now calling his own wars. He's got his own army, right? The if you re- watch the Borgias, <laughs> he's got his own army at this time. This document is admitting all that. That's all the stuff that we bitch about all the time. It's really interesting because many people will quote Unam Sanctam in a vacuum without understanding the context. And here's the context. Is exactly. The Unam Sanctam says, oh, uh, if you do not submit to the Pope in any in every way, you're going to hell. But it was it, it was a claim of the Pope to try to coerce people who are, with actual temporal power, kings, namely the king of France. And, and France yes. is going to come up again and again. <laughs> so we can see that uh the the french king simply didn't uh, didn't take kindly to it the, the the papacy was basically subjugated shortly after this and we we had a talk talking specifically about that um so that's really interesting as well it it just means that the the, the papacy is, isn't protected and when and when we yes. quote, uh, when someone quotes unam sanctam saying hey is that that, that the, the church showing the f- full power no it was pretty much an act of desperation at this point because it the papacy ended up Captive. They call it. They call it a captivity. Uh, this is yeah. This is basically admitting the the Frankish thesis exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit after the uh, after the Frankish empire. Right. It's after Charlemagne, but it's it's the principle that the papacy has become a a uh, political tool, right? Uh, and that principle is still exaggerated by the 14th and 15th century, right? So Charlemagne's 800, but the point is that. There's this revolution that has taken place in the East, which is admitted by Dvornik and by Congar, right? So the Gregorian reforms and after the Gregorian reforms, <clears throat> I mean, you have that period of 100 years of Germanic papacy. And then we get um, <clears throat> the shift over into Avignon papacy and all that. But it's the principle that this is a, a world power now. Uh, and it's it's mainly focused on geopolitical world power and theology and doctrine become secondary. And the reason I'm saying that is that that's still the case. So the reunion attempts that we get later on, like Brest and others, those are actually 
other further manifestations of this point, which is that it's no longer primarily about the theological disputes. Look at the first seven councils. Is it about geopolitical temporal power? No, the disputes in the councils are about Christology, uh, Trinity, incarnation, <clears throat> energies, icons. Now in the second millennia in the Latin church, the disputes keep being about the role of the Pope. Why is that? Well, it's again, because when the Pope offers union to the East, it's basically, look at Malkites, look at all the, the scale of what the people in the Eastern Uniate churches, they, they have a scale from, I only accept seven councils all the way over to basically being almost Roman Catholic or Latin, so to speak, right? Uh, another argument that just cut short, uh, like it literally says, uh, this episode was followed for a few years, uh, a few years later by the exile of the papacy in the French city of Avignon, where the popes live for 70 years under the control of the French monarchy. So uh, the argument that, oh, um, oh uh, the Byzantine church is just like, it's just Caesar or papism, it's just the emperor who dictates whatever he wants, which is not true. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. against against the emperor, uh, the church is controlled by the Tsar or by Putin or by the Turkish Sultan. All of that, like, you can see, the, uh, and, and the idea is that in order to to not have anything to say to the worldly authorities, the, the church needs to become a state by itself and a worldly authority. Well, that, that that's contradicted because the, the Pope had uh, a state at that point. And right. that's specifically why it got subjugated by the, Fr the French monarchy. And we will see that throughout history, there still had been this tension uh, with the French monarchy until, until an event. Uh, and that's also a very funny admission that we're going to see in a few minutes. Okay, so what section do you want me to pull up next? Uh, 1.15 is, I think, the next big one. Because it talks about the Council of Constance. It talks about Hyke Sancta. And it talks about conciliarism. So... Uh, for those who don't know, um, there was a period where there were three popes in the Roman Catholic Church between the 14th and the 15th centuries. This problem was resolved by the Council of Constance, which is an ecumenical council according to the Roman Catholic Church. It published a decree called Haec Sancta, and this document says that the highest authority in the church belongs to a council. Now, afterwards, the Roman Catholic Church said, ah, no, we're going to ignore this, right? We're going to reject this. But it developed this thesis in order to solve the issue of three different papal claimants because, well, you have three different papal claimants and they all have some kind of legitimacy. So which one are you going to be choosing? Well, you need a council, a true council, in order to choose the correct pope, but you need to have a correct pope to call the council, right? And so they try to get themselves away from this uh, contradiction by trying to use a temporary temporary fix-up. And once that fix-up occurred, they just, okay, well, just ignore this. This was just a, just something that we kind of just had to do for the time being. And But that's that's not really a valid outlook because, that, because at the end of the day, this has some kind of dogmatic approval. And it ended up being a legitimate position within the Roman Catholic Church throughout many, many different years. And so this document itself treats conciliarism in a very negative fashion. But in fact, what's really interesting is that conciliarism, I myself won't say it's the exact same thing as synodality, but it's very similar in many key aspects to synodality. Of course, this document, again, looks at it from a negative perspective, while it looks at synodality from a positive perspective. But I think it's kind of them trying to cover their tracks a little bit, at least from my perspective. Uh, and the Council of Constance is really, I mean, the whole thing is just a 
great illustration of the Roman Catholic system not working particularly in the 14th and the 15th centuries. Uh, that's kind of how I would look at yeah, it. Yeah, that's a great point. Fiasco. It is a great point, and it reminds me of what uh, the funny satirical account on Twitter, Tragcat Watch, said the other day, which was that for the Roman Catholic, for the Tragcat especially, the, mag- the, the papal magisterium is a thing that exists in theory and it doesn't actually have anything to do with the actual history of the church. It's just like when that girl called in uh, last night or the night before, and she was like, you always want to go to history. I want to talk about uh, the idea of authority and how that kind of tells us that the papacy is the case. Oh, so you mean an abstraction and not the actual historical papacy. So this is an... It just, it just makes sense. That doesn't like, no, like, first of all, like, we're looking for a historical church as instituted, and second of all, many things can make sense. Uh, like you, you yeah. look at many other republicanism uh, makes sense. Like that's not that's not a that's not a superb argument. You know, it's, it's the idea is that oh, there needs to be an authority. Yeah, well, you have to develop the authority. We can have primacy within our system, sure. Yeah, and if there was a so and, and but the and the, usually the mission of those people is that. It took the church the first thousand years to realize that synodality, collegiality, conciliarism didn't work the best. So the next thousand years, they figured out papalism. <laughs> so it's like, wait a minute. So where was the Holy Spirit guiding the church in the first thousand years? That the, the, the Holy Spirit wasn't smart enough to tell the church that the best, most pragmatic, effective way to govern the church is the top-down uh, God-Emperor monarchy. Well, yeah, uh, again, uh, like uh, we're looking for a historic church. So if 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 the claims of the organization of your church needs to rely on modern communication technologies that, that really doesn't that doesn't really work well that's why yeah that's why i asked her i, was, I asked her go ahead sorry no go ahead. so that's why vatican one is 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 um is uh is really modern in that sense because you can see there's a spirit of absolutism breathing here it, it even says that you should not like cut ways of communication with the Pope, like, you know, probably referring to Great point. and circle or the, the, the telegraph or whatever. So if if a historic church needs to rely on on modern or industrial uh, ways of uh, communication, if, if that part and parcel and a necessity in your system, uh, probably your system is not apostolic. Yeah, and there, that's and she essentially went on to admit, yeah, the the church of the first thousand years is not the the Vatican One church. Yeah, exactly, that's the that's our whole point. So, uh, who's the historic church? Who's the church of the first thousand years? I mean, that's the key issue between the key point of debate between a Roman Catholic and Orthodox person. And if it's not the Vatican One system. That's it. That system is canceled out. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. That, so that's why I always ask these people: How would anybody, the average person in the year three hundred, remember the papal system is supposed to be so practical and so obvious? Well, there was no internet, and modern communications like Snack's saying. So how is a person in the year three hundred, prior to the first ecumenical council, how am I supposed to recognize what the true church is in the year three hundred if the papal system is true? Am I supposed to, uh, by osmosis, if I if I live in Ephesus, I'm supposed to know what's going on in Rome? If I live in Ephesus, it's just crazy. It doesn't make any sense, right? So so you can't make it this apologetics of post-Vatican I apologetics, right? And if, if that was how the church operated in the first 700 years or the first 1,000 years, how come none of the church fathers are doing post-Vatican I-style apologetics? 
They would have been simply proving the church in this Vatican one way. Well, uh, yeah, but it didn't. The church hadn't evolved yet to have this truth. Exactly. So all we constantly we see that this position on the one hand is not the church of the first thousand years. Yet they constantly quote mine and pick things out of the first thousand years to try to prove that it was the church of the first thousand years. Yet they then turn around and say, well, all the, the counter evidence just proves development. You see, well, this is an, a ridiculous, unfalsifiable position. So it's not the church of the first thousand years, but also it's there. But uh, it also developed and it's a completely different structure of the church in the second millennium. Sure. But that's because we figured out a more practical way to run the church. Okay, but again, the, the, what you think is more practical is not the point here. If that's not the structure that Christ laid down, and remember, the faith is once for all delivered to the saints. How can there be something that's good enough in the first, second, and third century, but not good? But but that's not good enough in the year uh, 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, 1,300, you say. Yeah, and you want to know the funniest thing about this is that um, the Jewish fathers, uh, especially since Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, they actually do make theological argument for a centralized um, administration with a single head. They they do it for the emperor. They never do it for the, the like. The, if if it was clear that oh we have one god, therefore we need to have one supreme head of yes. the church. Um, therefore the papacy. I mean, all the arguments were already here. Now, wait, real quick detour, Snack. I have a question for you, Snack, because I think you were saying this in the comments of the discussion. So in terms of Lateran 649, and we don't have to spend a whole lot of time on this, but uh, to me, it looks like actually uh, an egg on the face uh, argument against the papacy. Roman Catholics want to use Lateran 649 as a papal proof, but to me, it looks like it's not because weren't you making the point that Latter in 649 was not uh, conceived of as ecumenical at the time because the Pope couldn't get the emperor to approve it. Is that correct? Um, so that's really interesting that you mention it. Uh, I think some would say it's ecumenical at the time, namely St. Maximus. But St. Maximus doesn't... No, 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 I understand. But I'm saying from the Roman Catholic view, they don't count it as one. Yeah, yeah, they, they don't count it. But if you if you look at uh, at some of the claims there, which are which are of, of course saying that Rome is a pillar of the faith because at the time it was the only uh, the only jurisdiction that maintained the faith so it's 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 well deserved but they did not accept it and if you go to the acts of this uh, synod by uh, Father Price who's a Roman Catholic it would say oh Rome is uh, is is of course um, this is really kind and appreciative words for Rome. But the Roman delegates themselves did not understand the synod to be uh, yeah. to be ecumenical. They, they they understood that without the approval of the of the other patriarchs, yes, uh, it wouldn't work. And and uh, I, I found some other historians, uh, uh, Latin historians um, like Libertus of Carthage, who says this for uh, Chalcedon. They say that the, the legates wouldn't want uh, a synod to happen without the approval. Uh, of of the emperor uh, and the and the eastern churches because nobody would take them seriously. Yeah, and real quick, we'll go back to David. I don't want to leave David out. Uh, the the reason we're bringing up I'm bringing up 649 is that so this is the first attempt of the Roman bishop to call his own council with I think they had over I think they had like 108 bishops present. So with Roman approval and with 108 bishops, including bishops from the east, present. In the Roman Catholic idea of what makes a council an ecumenical council, there's no reason why that should not be a Roman Catholic council if 
in the year 649, they had the Vatican I mindset. It has all the criteria for a an, a, a, an ecumenical council. However, Rome does not count Lateran 649 amongst its ecumenical councils. So this shows us that they clearly that in that year, this in the in the seventh century, nobody had the 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 mindset that all that's needed for an ecumenical council is simply the approval of the Roman bishop. And it would it would have been way easier for the church because uh, right after this, you know, there's a new wave of persecutions, and Maximus gets uh, uh, tortured and exiled. Uh, right. Pope Saint Martin is uh, is is killed. So um, if, if there was a power to definitely adjudicate uh, forever, if everybody agreeing, uh, it would have been over then and then. Yeah. David, I want to uh, go back to you if, uh, if you want to move on to a specific point or area. Yeah. Um, the next part that I was thinking of, it talks about the Council of Florence next. Uh, but before we can we move on to Council of Florence, uh, one thing I think Snake will especially uh would like to deal with this, it starts to talk about Gallicanism, right? That conciliarism gave rise to Gallicanism and that it points out that the, that Gallicanism lasted until the 19th century, um, until, I think, Napoleon. And I, and Slek being French, I think he has a lot of knowledge regarding Gallicanism. So uh, before we move, before we talk about the Council of Florence, Slek, would you like to give some comments about the whole, like the Gallicanist movement and how it kind of resisted uh, papal supremacy in the in the history of the West in some form? Yeah, so this goes back to point 1.15, and it says that the Council of uh, uh, of Constance issued a deposition of the Pope and the idea uh, of, of, uh, of all the Popes and named another one and, and stated that uh, the Pope is, uh, is as an authority that is under the Council. And we would agree, you know, we would say that uh, a, a primate uh, has authority, but he cannot like overrule an economical council on his own. Uh, and here, I think it's probably the first point of the document I don't really appreciate. Uh, so it said, "Oh, synodality is great, but but when the Pope got humiliated like this, uh, it's actually not synodality; it's conciliarism, which is just the Latin root of the same term." Um, and and then it says that uh, this uh, this system is based on a, on on a civic Roman understanding. Well, didn't you just agree that I mean argument that uh, that the donation of Constantine was used by the Roman Church because that was a civic Roman document that was supposed to be a, a law a donation passed by Constantine. So saying that uh, um, the integration of Roman civic institutions into the Church is inherently disqualifying i mean it's a bit weird you know you still have dioceses you still have uh you know even the central rome uh you know the, the earliest attestation of rome having a central role uh back to clement uh of rome it's because rome is the center of the empire literally you know orion is uh so i think it's a bit of a cop-out i think that this is a point where the the document tries to not give in too much because like literally if, if you say yeah I they can't I, give everything exactly yeah yeah so so that's basically barring this and then saying oh uh this this idea conciliarism it led to the french church being gallican meaning basically autocephalus under a king um but no like if you look at the gallican writers they do not say, I mean, of course they mention Aix Sancta, of course they mention the Council of Basel, of course they mention these, of course they mention Honorius, uh, but they're not saying, um, they're not saying, oh, we, 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 we do it because of the 
Roman institu civic institution or because of uh, of Alexander proper, they will quote, you know, you have people like Bossuet and so on. They will mention the Merovingian canons. They will mention the canons of the ancient church of gold. They will mention the Carolingian canons. They will mention all of these councils that, that show that this, this system, you know, conciliarism, which, which really is synodality, was already established and uh, we, we had a whole talk about this but there even was a triple proclamation you know the like in like in the byzantine empire meaning that the the king like he is not the one who chose the bishop but he he approved them he approved them and the people also acclaimed them which is something we still see in the orthodox church so i think this is a bit of a cupboard i think they are trying to uh to give as much um to concede as many points as possible to the orthodox but not concede either gallicanism or uh, or conciliarism of Aixanta. We would agree with Aixanta. And actually, going to the Council of Florence, uh, a big part of why the delegation came to Florence is because they looked at what was happening in the West and they saw, oh, look, the, the, the Roman Church just said the Council is above the, the Pope, so maybe we'll be able to discuss again. And we'll see that that's not exactly what happened. Actually, the opposite happened. But um, basically, I don't think we can sweep Gallicanism under the rug. I think it, it's coming later um, again in the document. So we'll talk about it later. But essentially, Gallicanism is an autocephalous church. Under well, I was going to say, didn't, didn't you make an argument a long time ago in one of our streams that the ancient French church was autocephalous, something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it, it recognized Rome as a, as a patriarch. Yeah, but it, it was organized by itself, and and you needed to go through the king, and the king saw himself as a protector of the church in his realm, um, and and of course, he, you know, even even the subjugation of the papacy in Avignon was an action to protect his church, and you you have, for example, council of the clergy, um, you know, at some point, uh, kings were getting assassinated. By the way, most of the French kings that got assassinated were uh, were assassinated by. Uh, uh, by by Catholics uh, theocrats, <laughs> that's interesting. Oh, interesting. Uh, and and they they proclaim, for example, that the king is a uh, is a statue of God. So he's basically saying that he's got an iconographic role, and therefore um, attacking him is attacking God. That's exactly the same thing you have you've got with Byzantine emperors. Right. That's the same rhetoric. So um, the idea is that this was a, a novel thing that was um, that didn't have any. No, that, that's that's not what it was. You know, you can see it fr from the conversion of the Frankish people from from Clovis in in five eleven the, the the day the, the year he died. He convened a council, and you already have all this. You already have the rights of bishops being preserved. Uh, you already have the triple um, triple approval of the bishops. This is already in place. This is not something that was invented. So something that was solidified, especially when Rome meddled. But it it was not a new thing. And the Gallicans were clear about that. By the way, for those in the yeah, I want to remind everybody in the chat too that uh, the link for the Alexandria document is too long to put into the YouTube chat, so I'm going to include the link. I did put a Twitter, uh, my I tweeted out the link, and you can go to my my Twitter and get the full document. But after this, I'll put underneath the show description um, both documents so you can pull them up. They're not very long. I highly recommend everybody read them because, I mean, they're like 90% conceding all the points that we make. So look for the documents if you're watching this later on uh, in the show description. Go ahead, yeah. whoever. Say, so, you want to continue? No, I think I think we're gonna to touch on Gallicanism a bit a bit later. But okay. uh, no, let's go to Florence, and this is this is, this is up your alley. 
Yeah, well, I suppose so, yeah. So the Council of Florence, uh, Snake already made this point. Uh, there was at the same time a conciliar assembly in, in Basel, which is what convinced a lot of the Orthodox bishops to go to Florence, like to, to well, not to Florence specifically, but to have a council with Roman Catholics because they saw the encouraging developments. But later on, uh, the church, again, it basically ruled, oh, well, that decision we made, actually, we don't follow that decision anymore. We're just going to, you know, scrub it off. And the Council of Florence happened instead. And there were various different theological debates. I think um, I want to kind of note some some specific things. A lot of people kind of, uh, a big mistake some people online do is that they look at the kind of the pet theories of certain uh, figures in the in the council and they use their views in order to push, oh, this is the official view of the of this specific issue, like the Filioque or whatever. But one of the biggest um, blunders of the Council of Florence is that it says that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son as a cause, right? It says this very explicitly that it does so in the Greek sense. And it the Council also rejected the interpretation of causality as having any understanding of mediate causality. So it when it speaks about the Greek sense of causality, specifically refers to being uncaused, like not uncaused cause, but being caused at all, right? So the Son is not a cause of the Holy Spirit at all, whereas the Council of Florence says it is. But St. Maximus Confessor says that the Holy Spirit, that the Son is not a cause of the Holy Spirit. So this is one of the big blunders of the Council of Florence, is that it directly contradicts St. Maximus's this um letter to Marinus, which it at first the, the bishops at the council said, oh yeah, this is in fact or uh, this is in fact from St. Maximus. And then it says, oh actually it's not from St. Maximus. It's kind of so there's a lot of really interesting things that happen in the Council of Florence. But we see the same team in the Council of Florence, in spite of the various different theological disputes, which at the end of the day, as long as you kiss the papal feet, everything is fine. Um, and one of the things that uh, Ostromov notes in his book on the Council of Florence is that after the council, right, after the union occurred, the Greek the, the Greek bishops didn't even commune uh, with the Roman Catholics. They didn't even, to my knowledge, they didn't even, even say the creed with the Filioque. They said without the Filioque. And they pretty much they pretty much acted as if nothing happened. But a key part of this, and many Roman Catholic apologists push misinformation about this, they said the Council of Florence is proof that orthodoxy is wrong because apparently the orthodox world completely accepted it. Well, in fact, the only church that can be spoken of accepting this council is the Greek church. And the patriarch died before he even signed it. And it's well known that the so-called uh, the signature of the patriarch is not in fact, it's in fact forged. It's not the real signature of the patriarch. The patriarch died before the council was signed by the Greek church. So the patriarch didn't even sign the council. And this document admits, in fact, this was not received. This says it, it says so in 1.19, that this council was not received by the Greek church. So it wasn't even being contested to being received by the other churches. It was not received by the Greek church, right? In, you know, even by the Greek church. And it was officially rejected in 1484. And it also had the participation of the East, four Eastern Patriarchates. Uh, and it says, through this present synodal Thomas, we overturned the council which was convened in Florence along with its definition and the propositions contained within it. And we declare by this Thomas that the Council of Florence is null and void. Now, this is the official declaration. Prior to this, the Council of Florence wasn't accepted either, 
right? Not by Constantinople, nor by any other Orthodox church. So at most, you have a couple of rogue figures becoming Roman Catholic, and that's the end result of the Council of Florence. So a lot of Roman Catholics use this as a gotcha against, against the Orthodox Christians. But in fact, this document admits that the Orthodox Church didn't accept this council, that it was really only the Greek Church that was that could be spoken of accepting this council at a time. And even by the very standards of the Greek Orthodox Church itself, that didn't occur. Those conditions were not met. So it's similar to the Council of Lyons, uh, in a sense, that the Greek Orthodox yes. Church and the Orthodox Church in general did not accept the Council of Florence. By the way, the document also says that the Council of Lyons was rejected by the, by the Church. Exactly. Oh, you know, the arguments that, oh, the schism never happened. Oh, you know, like you're actually in union with us uh, because you accepted Lyon and uh, and Florence. And uh, no, no, like that, they, they see that we rejected it. They even mentioned a council that authoritatively rejected it. So again, the Orthodox Church has the ability to make uh, binding decisions in the second millennium. Well, they already admit, I mean, you know, Benedict in his books admits that the Orthodox Church maintained its faith for the last thousand years. Oh, okay. Then we, that isn't that an admission that we don't need the papacy? <laughs> if we if we maintain the Orthodox faith for the last thousand years, then what is it exactly that the papacy gives us? And when I look at contemporary papism, I don't see all of the practical unity and guidance and uh, you know clarity that it's supposed to give. Like all the things they claim it gives, it doesn't actually give. But um, yeah, I did want to add too that if you guys remember, I love bringing this up, not because it uh, is necessarily 100% a proof of anything, but the when a lot of these dialogues started happening, uh, you know, more recently, there were publications and, and, you know, Catholic apologists that were already noticing, hey, wait a minute, we're already basically admitting that Vatican I's universalizing claims uh, are contrary to historical fact. And so here is this one I love to, to note that since publishing Orthodoxy and Roman Primacy in 2011, I continue to follow the, the dialogues, Dr. Adam DeVille. And he says, uh, yeah, it's just a fact that the first thousand years of papacy weren't Vatican I. Yeah, exactly. Regional limitations to the Bishop of Rome. Regional limitations to the Bishop of Rome. That's our admitting our point. Now, Roman Catholics always say, well, who cares? He's just one guy. It doesn't matter. Yeah, but these are pa these are documents and councils and synods, excuse me, not councils, but documents and theological commissions that Francis has no problem with. He doesn't he, he approves of these things. And as Snack said, uh, what Francis cited, what Balamond or or the, uh, one of these uh, K eighty one of these was cited by the papacy, right? I mean, they're papally approved commissions, right? Uh, so, so many of them are proofs. Let me pull up the documents. This is part of a mega series, by the way. Um, so it, is a, it, it is in the document of the Pontifical Council for, uh, for promoting right. Christian unity, uh, and it is a uh, lecum vade vecum, and the, the Pope mentions, uh, it mentions Ravenna, it mentions Chieti, uh, it mentions Balamand. So yeah, uh, you can you can just pull up the, the document. Now the reason we want to mention this is that now the Roman Catholics will say, well, yeah, but it doesn't matter because it's not about a binding. So, but here's the thing, and this is why I always stress this: is that for the Pope to teach or promote error, or any other bishop or uh, layperson in the Catholic Church, there's no requirement that to be a heretic it has to be binding. 
Because if that was the case, then nobody could be a heretic in the Roman Catholic Church because it would require that you that, that person bind everyone to it. Martin Luther couldn't bind anyone to his heresies, and yet he's condemned by the Pope, and he's called a heretic. So likewise, it doesn't matter who is saying it or what the degree of authority that they have is. If someone is publicly teaching and affir affirming and promoting heresies or schism, then they're guilty of the sin of heresy and schism in Roman Catholic moral theology and canon law. So if Pr Francis is promoting and pushing these documents and citing them and saying that it doesn't matter the level of authority that he's putting behind the documents. He's promoting and pushing something heretical, heterodox, something wrong theologically. So if if the if if we are in error as orthodox and if these documents are admitting our positions, then the documents are in error and are heterodox. And Francis promoting and pushing them makes Francis in error and heterodox. And so it doesn't matter how many thousands of times Roman Catholics come back with saying, it wasn't infallibly binding. It doesn't matter. Infallibly binding has nothing to do with whether the person pushing it is pushing heresy or not. It's a really simple point. But they always deflect into this ridiculous reply that, yeah, but he doesn't bind us to it, so it doesn't count. Martin Luther couldn't bind anyone to his heresies. So does that mean it doesn't count? No. The Pope still excommunicated Luther for his heresies. It's a really simple point, Roman Catholics. And I think it applies to Florence here too, because it, um, it, one key takeaway from our discusses Florence here is that the Pope wasn't really in the mindset of uniting the churches here. He was in the mindset of asserting his authority because there was conciliarism going around in the West, a resurgence of it. So the idea is that the documents of Florence, they just show a, a Pope in a, in a strong position that just asserts himself as he is. Not really. It shows him in a position of weakness, trying to fight for keeping the control of his own flock at the expense of unity with the East. So, it's, so again, the Greek bishops came thinking, we're going to, you know, conciliarism is back. We're going to be able to be treated as... Um, as equals, and the Pope just tried to be as strong as possible in order to rein in the the Western bishops. And again, that's a, that's that's a, that's a big problem. It shows that that Rome here um, failed. Like if you think that this is terrible, this is tragic, this schism is bad. Uh, that's a huge failure by Rome because of the the Pope trying to inflate himself. That's literally what, what Paul says uh, is going to cut you off from the church in, to the Roman church in Romans 11. Yeah, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. It doesn't count. He's not talking to the church. He's talking to only to the lay people in the church. <laughs> so that these are the deflections that you get with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, like um, I'm not making a, theo you know, a complete theological argument here. I'm just saying that... Uh, no, I, I'm, I agree with you. I agree. I'm just saying that they have all... They have all of these just ridiculous replies, right? Like Paul clearly is saying to the entire Roman church that if you're arrogant, you can be cut off. No, -uh, he's only talking to the lay people in the church. He's not saying, no, what are you talking about? He's talking about the church of Rome. It's the letter to the church at Rome. That's all the people in the church at Rome. Warning that you can be cut off. Anyway, I'm just going on a tangent. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, so, so that's the first takeaway that um, these assertions, just like Unam, uh, Unam Sanctam, it's not an assertion that, uh, that that's made from a position of power, but of desperation, and that's what uh, stops uh, stops the discussion. And then, of course, it explains that uh, the council was held under coercion. So, coercion, according to Saint Athanasius, according to Roman Catholic apologists themselves, when it comes to Liberius, who I was going to say they'll say they'll say Liberius doesn't count because it was under coercion. 
yeah but here it says oh it doesn't count because it's under coercion like florence was under coercion it literally says that it was accepted under pressure so if we have canonical norms if we understand you know I think that's quite easy to understand, you know, like we, everybody agrees, you know, Ephesus 2 is not ecumenical because they started to, to riot during the, the council. Uh, coercion is sufficient to reject the authority and the legitimacy of the, of the council. And here it says that there were coercions. So, um, you know, I've seen apologies say, oh, actually, no, actually, it's not true. That's an orthodox land. Uh, that's only in their sources. Well, we seem to agree here. So let's let's be let's be ch charitable and uh, um, and go to the to the documents that both of churches are approving, or at least uh, your church approves it. Uh, in, <laughs> right. Um, in terms of discussing with all church, so yeah, that probably should be uh, an important part. So um, some mention about Florence uh, upholding the canons, at least at least giving lip service, but that doesn't amount to much. But uh, yeah. Key takeaways, Rome doesn't speak in a position of power, but of desperation, and that's what derails the council. Uh, the council is rejected on canonical grounds uh, by the Greeks, you know, uh, as well oh, as other grounds. I, I, I do want to touch on, uh, I don't want to close out yet on this, because I want to touch on uh, Sardica and Trollo, because it admits a point that I said a long time ago that... Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, I just don't want to close out yet, because that... The uh, paragraph nineteen is also an interesting admission too. Go ahead and finish your thought. I, I just want to go to nineteen. Sure, sure. Like, uh, and, and another free uh, key takeaway is that the Orthodox Church could indeed and had the authority to unite uh, a dogmatic binding council in specifically rejecting the Council of Florence. So that's all the points we've been making all this time. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, David. Uh, weren't you gonna? Weren't you gonna make a point about? Yeah, I, I want to. I just so I don't want to. I want to give everybody the chance to talk. I just want to close it out without going to the admissions in uh, paragraph nineteen because uh, mm -hmm. I'll pull it up in a second. But it says I'll read it. Over the centuries, a number of appeals were made to the Bishop of Rome from the East in disciplinary matters such as the deposition of a bishop. This was made at the Synod of Sardica. Now, remember, the Roman Catholics have made a huge deal of Sardica. And by the way, Ubi has covered uh, the Sardican issue quite well over on his website. But it says that it established rules for such procedure. Sardica was received at Trollo 692. And the canons of Sardica determined that a bishop who had been condemned could appeal to the Bishop of Rome. Now, if you remember when I was arguing with Abara years ago, I said, yeah, there was an appeals process. And their argument, their assumption was that, oh, this is uh, only to Rome. Everyone could only just appeal to Rome. Because they're presupposing that the only appeals process was just to Rome. Sardica is mentioning, it was a local canon in the West, is mentioning, yeah, you can appeal to Rome. However, listen to this. Uh, it says, the canons of Sardica determined that a bishop could be uh, condemned. If he was condemned, he could appeal to the bishop of Rome. And that the latter, if he deemed it appropriate, might order a retrial to be conducted by bishops in the province neighboring the bishop's own. So number one, the appeal is not uh, Rome make the final decision. The appeal is for a retrial with other bishops, which is not a uh, Vatican I style thing. Appeals regarding disciplinary matters were also made to Constantinople. That's exactly what I said. I said the appeals appellate structure and system was not just to Rome because it's mentioned about uh, Athanasius, it's mentioned about 
uh, Alexandria is also, if I recall, comes up in this, as well as Constantinople. No, you're making that up. It's just a wrong. Oh, here's your document admitting what I said, that there was an appeals process to other patriarchates. Yeah. uh, Oh, by the way, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. One one last point. The the last sentence. I forgot the last sentence. It's the most important part. It says, appeals to the Bishop of Rome from the East express the communion of the church. However, this does not mean the Bishop of Rome did not exercise canonical authority over the churches of the East. Huge admission in point 19. However, the Bishop of Rome did not exercise canonical authority over the churches of the East. I'm sorry, this is Chieti document. I, I went back to the Chieti document. I wanted to mention that uh, I've got both of these documents pulled up and they're on the exact same website, so I was on the wrong document. But uh, Chieti document, paragraph 19, is one of the key points I wanted to mention in regard to the uh, Ibarra debate. Excuse me. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, that, that's fine. Um, I guess we can move to the section from the Reformation to the 18th century, right? Chapter 2, where they talk about some of the things that occurred um, 2.1, it, it reaffirms the admission that uh, orthodoxy continues to practice the apostolic understanding of synodality, whereas the, this document admits that there's further developments due to the Protestant Reformation um, that occurred. And it, it, it says synodality was still practiced in the East during this difficult periods. And, uh, you know, while the Roman Catholic Church was dealing with certain issues in the West, uh, the Orthodox Church was dealing with issues uh, of being under, for example, you know, Ottoman captivity and so on and so forth. Uh, in 2.4, it reaffirms this. Uh, oh, it, it talks about various different other councils that the Orthodox Church accepted, right? So this further disproves the whole, you know, you Orthodox can't have councils, you can't make decisions. I hear this over and over and over and over again by many, many different Roman Catholics, and they think that if they repeat this lie enough, then it's just going to end up being truth. But I'll just read the entirety of 2.4 because it's very important. The, jurid- the juridical millet system assigned all Orthodox living in the Ottoman Empire, irrespective of ethnic considerations, to the Rum millet, dependent upon the ecumenical patriarchate of Constantinople in ecclesiastical and civil matters. This emphasized the latter's central position within the Orthodox Church, known already from the canonical order, right? This was established in the Second Council, then really very much confirmed in the Fourth Ecumenical Council, right? In Canon 28, and enhanced its importance vis-a-vis the other ancient patriarchates. Despite this new situation, the spirit of synodality was nevertheless preserved. Councils were convoked by the ecumenical patriarch to resolve issues in a synodal way such as the Council of Constantinople in 1593 to confer the title of Patriarch granted early to the Metropolitan of Moscow, the Council of Yassi to adjudicate the Confession of Faith of the Metropolitan of Kiev, Peter Mohila, and the two great Council of Constantinople in 1638 and 1642. Further synods were convoked in Constantinople 1672-1691 and by Patriarch Docetius in Jerusalem 1672, which condemned the Confession of Faith attributed to the Patriarch Kirill Lucaris. So, what we see here, and there's a there's a different debate one can make about these various different councils, but what we see here is an admission from the stock from the Roman Catholic Church that the Orthodox Church did indeed make um, dogmatically bounding conciliar decisions, even after the schism, which showcases that from the perspective of the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church can make synodal dogmatic decisions that are bounding to all Orthodox Christians. And 
again, Roman Catholics have to understand this. This is not just us saying it. Your own church is admitting this right now. You're not just listening. You're not just not listening to us. You're also not listening to your own church. And that's that's just ridiculous. And doesn't this prove, by the way, how ridiculous and terrible the apologetics of Lofton and Ibarra are? I mean, this is basically uh, constantly admitting every argument we've made against a lot of their arguments. <laughs> I mean, Trent Horn, where you at, bro? This is a, this is admitting all of our points. So, are, when are the Roman Catholics going to stop giving up their their tired old pop apologetics and start dealing with what their own experts and Francis are admitting? Yeah. Something else that's interesting from this same section, uh, 2.7, so talking about Russia, uh, it mentions uh, the reforms of uh, Peter the Great, you know, Kurt Veliki, uh, which uh, basically, like it, it says it, and it's, it's, pro it's probably uh, true to a large extent, that uh, uh, the church administration uh, was reformed and the uh, Protestant models, the patriarchate was abolished, and then uh, there was um, a civil uh, servant that had missed a permanent synod. And it says that even 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 when strongly under the influence of the state, even at that point, uh, the synodal structure prevailed. And that's what we see today. Like today, the Moscow Patriarchate was reestablished. So, um, so syn uh, synodality, uh, even under this sort of um, captivity, if, even with this kind of meddling, you know, which is a classic argument as well, you know, or oh, the the church uh, wasn't was controlled by uh, by the state, uh, it still prevailed. It still managed to uh, to take decisions uh, and to participate to other decisions. You know, some of the councils we've mentioned were approved universally through also the reception of the Russian jurisdiction. That's really interesting. Yeah, uh, before we move on to chapter three, I think there's some other additional comments made about Gallicanism. So I think it will be timely if you also covered uh, the whole Gallicanism, history of Gallicanism. Uh, it's specific, the specific part I am referring to. Uh, give me a second. So as you while you're looking for that, I want to while you're looking at that, I'm going to note that. So in the chat, a lot of the Roman Catholics and the people that are asking questions or whatever, it's like these are the you guys are bringing up the same old stuff that we've always talked about for a million years. All of the same old objections. If you want to deal, so if you want the formula of Hermisdus, there's Ubi's article on that. We've covered that. Ubi's covered all of this. So guys, look, just go read these articles because today we're talking about the document from Alexandria and the and the Chieti documents. So those are the doc. We're not covering all these tired old Roman Catholic objections. We've covered those a million times. So go look at those documents from Ubi on those specifics. Correct. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, I think we can go into um, Gallicanism. I'd, I'd like you to have a word on unitism as well, because there's a section in this. But uh, what's really interesting is that um, it shows that, of course, uh, the vision of the Pope was uh, reinforced at the Council of Trent. Uh, but that basically France maintained its own system, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read 2.3. Provincial synod aimed at implementing the Trinitarian reform took place in Italy, in the German Empire, in France, in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Under political pressure, the Roman Catholic bishops of many kingdoms sought greater autonomy with regards to papal primacy. So this was not being accepted. So. All the arguments, so you know, oh, we are base monarchists and all. Um, like, no, monarchy was seeing 
seeing itself in conflict with uh, with papal supremacy with these kind of claims these episcopalist tendencies example uh, gallicanism in france febrobianism in germany continue to advocate for conciliarism this is a system that was in place since the merovingians the idea that um, bishops had specific rights you see that in clovis already so the idea is that it's a uh, it's it's a, it's a lingering tendency that appeared that uh, after after the Council of Constance is kind of weird. The French Revolution finally led to the downfall of the Ancien Régime, and to the destruction of the state church, which ultimately strengthened the ties between the Church of France and Rome. Since after the collapse of the old order, only the papacy had the authority to reorganize the church. Uh, see the Concordat of France and the Congress. Uh, of Vienna, so these are under Napoleon and post-Napoleon. But you can see that all the argument, you know, oh, we fight against the revolution. Oh, uh, we are based monarchists and all this. No, the monarchy was seeing the the papacy and these kind of claims as a threat, and they did not allow the paper people meddling into their affairs. Um, you know, to 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 a huge extent, and the only thing that could actually make these Papal-centered reform happened was literally as a tabula rasa, as a blank slate, the destruction of the revolution. So the idea is that, um, oh, you know, uh, that's, that's really common among many many French um, uh, French Roman Catholics is the idea that oh, the true friends is, is a monarchist friend that, that 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 fought against the revolution and we cannot accept the revolution. No, literally, the Church of France was autocephalous, Gallican. It was only snuffed out. Because of the revolution, Rome came <coughs> only by signing concordats with the post-revolutionary authorities. Literally, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that Rome made this happen, but just like the siege of Constantinople, it benefited from it. It's the same thing that you see at the time of the revolution in Russia in 1917. After you see, for example, um Roman Catholic apologists and so on saying, "Oh, no, the Tsar is dead. So, so we can we can we can go in. We can benefit from the tabula rasa. Uh, that's a terrible thing to admit. You know, basically, the only reason why the Church of France is not a Gallican autocephalous under a king uh, church, like it always was since Clovis, since the establishment of the mm -hmm. Kingdom of the Franks, is because of the revolution. That, uh, that's huge politically." I mean, in terms of ecclesiology, um, probably less, but in terms of um, the ecclesial identity of uh, of, a, of a French person, you, you you can see that the Gallicans were opposed to that. And you can see that in personalities like uh, Abbe Guettet, for example, who was uh, a Gallican. He came a little bit after because it was a resurgence of Gallicanism, but he identified clearly the the the, the papal claims, the ultramontane claims, as a threat to the legitimate French government. Yeah, because remember, as we said, the papacy had already become uh, very much a geopolitical power. And so uh, that's also admitted in 2.6, where it says that with all of these attempted reunion councils like Brest, Croatia, Transylvania, Uzorod, Serbia, it says the motives for these unions have been contested. There was probably some real desire, but 
there's a lot of political influence as well. <laughs> so it's like, haven't we always been saying that the motivation for this wasn't anything to do with theology, but it was it was papal, right? Yeah, exactly. And this document saying, yeah, I mean, it says religious and political factors were frequently intertwined. Oh yeah, like if you see Poland, it's a, it's a shift uh, after the, the end of the Jagiellon dynasty, the shift towards more uh, centralism with. Uh, with links to Rome, you can see that uh, you, you you can see that also with the Melkites, um, or in the in the Far East, many ma, ma, often it was linked to the establishment uh, and ability to to enter some uh, school institution and so on. So um, it was it was baiting people. It was done in yes in ways that are not theological. You can even say coercion sometimes, which again we've we've seen is. Uh, is 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 even an invalidating factor. So, the idea that unitism is actually seen perceived as a threat towards unity is something that Rome admits now. So, the idea that oh, I'm gonna be, uh, I'm gonna go to an Eastern Catholic Church, I'm gonna be a union to be able to, um, to to leave all that. Rome itself says, I think if I don't know if it's in Balamand or if it's in the Cuba document that uh, it's it's not uh, it's not a valid way to proceed anymore. Because it's perceived as a threat, rightfully so, according to this document. Well, keep in mind, too, just the mere fact that the Pope has removed the Triple Crown, which the Triple Crown was signified his uh, authority over the temporal domain. I mean, the trads make a big deal about this because it's a symbolic gesture that, oh, okay, by the way, I'm not interested in uh, geopolitical power and supremacy over all temporal authorities like I used to be, like Unum Sanctum says, you have to believe for salvation. So so to be saved in uh, the time of, uh, you know, Unum Sanctum, I had to believe in the temporal power of the Roman bishop. Since the Pope now and Vatican II documents say we're no longer concerned with that, now it's no longer necessary for salvation. So you understand that in the Roman Catholic system, evolving theology means evolving criteria for salvation. I only know what I... I mean, it depends on the Pope at the time, right? I mean, ultimately, my salvation depends upon what the present-day papacy says, which is ridiculous. That, and they will actually say, well, that's Office of the Keys, bro. Officer Keys, you got to believe whatever's going on now at the present time. How can the requirement for salvation change? That's crazy. I mean, ultimately, there's no longer a traditional religion. That's just a pure cult of authority. I think Zizek makes this point. It just says that oh, at, at this point, it's just follow what the... What the no, that's, yeah, exactly. That's the same. Justin Popovich says the same thing, too. It's a worship of authority. It's yeah, a pure, and, uh, pure cult of authority, Dullinger, exactly. Dullinger says that... Uh, uh, at this point, the Pope is just an oracle of the Tiber, meaning that you 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 have someone that is, that is himself the tradition and and the only way to interpret previous traditions. So you you cannot look into tradition like, like we've always done. You you cannot look into a book because you know we're still a, a religion of scripture. You need to uh, rub the magic lamp uh, and ask your, your question. You you need, you need to consult the oracle of the Tiber. So that was that was an argument. The early um, early Christian would make against uh, against the pagans, saying, hey, you, you don't have a solid grounding. You yeah, it's against... Half of you don't believe in your own tradition, and uh, and, and you don't have a, a unified text to look towards. <laughs> we're just back to square one. Yeah, we're back to square one, a pure pagan worship of authority. Exactly. All right, what's next, and you guys? I think, and I think, I mean, chapter three pretty much starts with semi-admitting this. Right. I mean, it talks about how the papacy adopted the doctrine of the church as a perfect society. 
meaning that the church was an independent, autonomous, and sovereign society in her own sphere of competence, just as the state was sovereign in temporal affairs. And what it says then next, uh, well, not what it says next, but I mean, combine this at Vatican I and, and other papal declarations in the past, um, this is basically admitting that at the start of the 19th century, the church, the, the Roman Catholic Church saw itself as the head of pretty much both temporal society and, you know, heavenly, that is ecclesial society. Um, so this kind of like amassing of authority, right, that gradually occurred over time is really manifesting itself in, in Vatican I. And it also notes in 3.2, talks about an epistle uh, where it argues that the supreme authority of the Roman Pontus was always recognized in the East. It's really interesting that, you know, it mentions this epistle, but then this document itself says, well, actually, that epistle is kind of wrong. <laughs> and uh, that to me is 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 quite strange. I mean, it doesn't say it's in the paragraph, it doesn't say it explicitly, but I mean, when it talks about uh, papal supremacy, it calls it papal premacy, but really the more correct term is papal supremacy. This document admits papal supremacy as being a doctrine of development, right? And so in a sense, uh, Suprema Patria Pistoli Sede, right, 18, in 1848, which got responded by the Orthodox Patriarchs in the encyclical letter of 1848, this document is already admitting that the Roman Catholic perspective is also wrong, at the very least. Yeah, and, and, and it's not just that. Also, yeah, Satis Cognitum says it as well, and the argumentation of Pastor Eternus is reasons in a similar way which is that it's not based on development it's based on what was always the case and always recognized but they trade on that ambiguity there of well what exactly was rec recognized the the uh peter as the corypheus peter as first peter as as this document says that the bishop of rome giving canonical privileges yeah that's always been recognized but that doesn't translate into Vatican I's claims of universal supremacy and jurisdiction. That was not always recognized. And so that's why they have to, again, guys, don't you understand? It's like people, it's like talking to the slow boys out there. Like You can't, on the one hand, argue that it was always the case and clear, but it was also the case that it was never clear and it required development. Those two things are mutually exclusive. They can't both be true. Yeah, exactly. And and then it further talks about uh, it talks about a council that the Orthodox did to condemn ethnophilism and how the, or the ecumenical patriarch granted autocephaly to the churches of Greece, Serbia, Romania due to the situations that occurred at the time, right? The movement in in the Balkans between the Balkan, you know, the Greek people, the Serbian people, Romanian people against you know the Turkish government and so on and so forth. And it talks about uh, you know, the first Vatican Council. But I think I think particularly with this, it, it still makes comments about conciliarism. Um, though I think, Jay, uh, you will definitely be uh, more in line with kind of referring, like, like talking about uh, what Pastor Eternus, what the first Vatican, Vatican Council talked about. I just want to reiterate something I said at the beginning, which is 3.11. I want to read this. It says, Pope Leo XIII's Apostolic Letter Orientalium Dignitas in 1894 recognized the distinct rights of all the Catholic Eastern churches and showed a respectful approach to Eastern traditions. So this is where you start this kind of acceptance of Eastern traditions over time, and it's sporadically increasing. This movement is sporadically increasing. Then his encyclical letter, Praclera Gratulationis in 1895, invited all the Orthodox to union with the Church of Rome on the condition 
that they recognize the papal supremacy of jurisdiction. So here you see very clearly that at the end of the day, at the end of 19th century, they all, all you need to do as an Orthodox Christian in order to be united with the Roman Catholic Church, turns out you can keep your faith, you can keep your doctrines, you can keep everything that you have. You just need to kiss the papal feet, right? That's basically what it's telling you, right? And it's... Oh, yeah, it's a great, admi it's a great admission. Pretty. Exactly. Great admission. Yeah, and it, at, and the Orthodox basically rejected this, right? The Orthodox basically said, this is ridiculous. We're not going to accept this. Well, right? by the so, way, by the way, we should add that the 18 or 19 of Chieti, which we just read, says the opposite of this, right? It notes that the very criteria that Leo is is asking for here is not the historic position of the church. So wait a minute. Chieti says that I have to accept something that so you so Chieti says it's not the historic position. Pope Leo's uh, letter says that it is the necessary position to accept. So why am I forced to accept something that is admittedly not the traditional position of the church? You see how these contradict. Chieti 18 or 19 or whatever it is. Uh, let me read it again because I got them both pulled up here. Chieti 19 says, quote, Appeals to the Bishop of Rome from the East expressed communion of the church, but the Bishop of Rome did not exercise canonical authority over the churches of the East. Quote, unquote, that's 19 of Chieti. And what does this say right here? It says that the requirement, according to Leo XIII., was that you accept precisely that, which is admitted to be not the case. <laughs> so that's called a contradiction, Roman Catholics. Contradiction. Yeah. I'd like to comment on this section mm -hmm. as a whole. I think I think here um clearly the scope is looking towards um uh the talks of 2025. I think he's trying to prop up Constantinople quite a bit. And I think it's it's even Absolutely. displaying documents that that we would say are in debate as having full authority. So that's funny because that, that would be the Roman Catholic side saying that the Orthodox uh, actually have more councils <laughs> and more um and, and more authoritative documents than the Orthodox themselves admit. So uh considering the classic uh argument is to say that uh, we don't, it's a bit uh contradictory. Um, and I think it's trying to uh, say that the um, primarial role of Constantinople is um, needs to, is really bolstered up uh, to the point that it doesn't really mention, for example, the fact that the, <coughs> the Jerusalem Council of Dothesius wasn't made by Constantinople. It was made against a patriarch of Constantinople, Lucaris. So uh, I think it really skips a little bit on the, on, on this part, even though uh it, it admitted it was um a binding council before so i think here's a goal would be to legitimize some more roman powers by saying hey constantinople can have that too but in the east so um this is another part of the no you're absolutely that, right this uh, is preparing for 2020 object a little bit too because this is, that's you're still something in discussion within the Orthodox church because uh it is true it is factual that autocephalies uh, were um, historically confirmed by Constantinople, but um, you know we can also say that many churches confirmed them, and that maybe Constantinople gave the impetus, but does, it can, cannot act um, supremely on that. And I think it goes back to Canon Thirty Four, which is which is this great, yes. um, which is great and very balanced, which is to say that um, the synod cannot oppose 
the the decision of the primate, but uh, the primate cannot go against the decision the decisions of the synod. So they need to act in tandem. And I think right. here he's going to prop Constantinople as much as possible, but it, it's it's still quite tame compared to some of the papal claims. Real quick, uh, let's do that. Uh, I just want everyone to see because I, I know how the s- slow boys in the audience operate. Uh, they're not going to pay attention to what we said. They're going to blow past it and ignore it. Okay, to make this really easy for you guys, on the left of the screen, 3.11, you'll see what David was talking about, Pope Leo XIII's letter, Orientalium Dignitatis, right? Dignitas, excuse me. Recognize distinct rights of all the Catholic Eastern churches and show to respect for their traditions. His encyclical letter, uh, Preclara Gratulationis, invited all the Orthodox to union with the Church of Rome on the condition that they recognize the primacy, papal primacy of jurisdiction. Okay, that's the present-day Alexandria document. On the right of the screen, you'll see the Chieti document in paragraph 19 a few years ago. Both of these are similar documents. What does it say there? Appeals to disciplinary matters were made also to Constantinople and other sees. You see that? That was my point against Deborah. Such appeals... To major sees were always treated in a synodical way. Appeals to the Bishop of Rome from the East expressed the communion of the Church, but the Bishop of Rome did not exercise canonical authority over the churches of the East. Do you see these admissions? And do you see that that's a contradiction? The document on the left is admitting that Leo XIII's attitude is that you must accept the ancient view, the traditional Vatican I view that the Roman Bishop has universal authority and canonical authority over all churches. The document on the right says in the first thousand years, he didn't have that authority and exercise. That's called a contradiction, Roman Catholics. Do you see that? The class counter argument would be to say, oh, like he didn't have canonical jurisdiction, but he still had this charism of universal jurisdiction and being the head of the church. It just said, it just that it, it didn't use it, and it wasn't recognized by the others, and it wasn't reflected in canon. Yeah, that's called being unfalsifiable. <laughs> yeah, arguments yeah. from silence. It was there always. They never used it. It was secret, hidden powers. Uh, by the way, this is the practical system, which makes it all easy and simple, and the Pope should have just... Why didn't he just use these powers, Eric? Well, the Pope had these powers, but... He just didn't use it or exercise it. By the way, I'm getting... I mean, the thing is, uh, an argument of silence supposes that there is no direct counter-argument. Like, an argument of silence would would say, oh, canon law sort of left a spot uh, for this to happen. Whereas we can see clearly the opposite being practiced and being enshrined, you know, namely the autocephalies and all. Exactly. Like... Yeah, like you're pretty much begging the question if you're saying this power exists, but it wasn't used, it wasn't demonstrated, nobody felt the need to uh, to proclaim it. Well, I mean, again, so doesn't that make things easy and simple if this power is there to resolve the problems, but the papacy is not smart enough to use the power that it has to resolve the problems? And and by the way, the classical you know proof text for this would be um, you know, papal, uh, pay, uh, you know, other jurisdiction appealing to the Pope or a papal document being said and being ratified by everybody. But as the document of Katie itself says, well, this is not something that, that strictly exists in the Pope and this idea 
of you know sending documents for approval by others isn't really <laughs> right isn't really the, the, the papacy uh, in this claim it's just manifesting un, is a unity or so, yeah Remember when I brought that up to Eric Abara and I said, why didn't everybody just write letters to the Pope to have all the issues settled? And he said, because the Vatican would be full of paper stacks everywhere. You wouldn't have time to get through them all. Okay. Uh, if that was the case, we, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't use examples, for example, of literally the papacy intervening and nobody caring. Uh, in cases exactly. of persecution and, and all that. Iconoclasm or that. Oh, if 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 it was case closed because Rome talk, yeah, ma many cases would have been closed. No, yeah, but you're ready to discuss. Remember, they'll use the art. They'll they'll use the letter of Clement to try to act like that's how the church operated in the first century. Oh, we just asked Clement. Clement writes a letter and solves the disputes in the Church of Corinth from you know eight hundred miles away or whatever, five hundred miles. What? However far Corinth is, but. So they'll be like, oh, look, see, uh, Pope Clement is uh, just uh, with a swipe of the pen uh, resolving the issues in a church, uh, you know, hundreds of miles away. Yeah, again, at this point, it just means that they're helping, communicating, uh, you know, um, or even calling someone uh, for help means that he has power over you. Again, that's begging the question. And on the case... Well, but, 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 yeah, but, but it's, but it's, it's saying, well, but wait a minute. So if it was there that whole time, then it didn't develop as a seed form. How can Clement be exercising full, full universal Vatican I jurisdiction and supremacy? And yet it's something that has to develop, you see. So it can't be both of those things is my point. It can't be always there clear as day existing as an exercisable power but it's also not always there it developed you see yeah yeah and to to close on that uh, this document clearly says that it's a it's a development and satis cognizum says it's not a development it was always there all right what do you guys want to go to next yeah i, I mean Chapter four kind of just talks about some, like it gives an overview to various different ecclesiological views um, across various different parties. And I suppose the one thing to me, it, this chapter really interests me too much. Um, I guess it talks a little bit about uh, the concept of Sobornos, which again, it was developed by uh, in 19th century Russia. Uh, but it kind of just goes over the history of this position. So you kind of see that this, this kind of understanding uh, didn't really uh, influence the church as a whole, but rather a specific part of the church, which I think Snekel really got into the history of uh, the history of the Russian church and kind of how it got out of the mess that it ended up getting out of uh, today. And other than that, I, I suppose one view that kind of, like, like some of these views are like the Eucharistic ecclesiology view and the and kind of the church's communion. I mean, these are kind of interesting views, but the the way it is described here in this document is a bit too broad, which is fine because it's you know the document is kind of just going over several different views. Uh, and the main part of the document is interesting is kind of the admissions that it makes. Another thing that I want to kind of point out, actually, now that I remember. Uh, the, it kind of treats, it props up Crete 2016 way too much, whereas everyone who knows a little bit about the Council of Crete knows that, in fact, it didn't really have a complete 
Catholic Pan-Orthodox uh, acceptance. Uh, I mean, many different churches didn't show up. Some right? frequent documents did, but uh, they didn't discuss mm -hmm. what, what they planned to discuss. Um, yeah. Yeah. So basically, the fourth part is it's a history of ecumenism. So, um, you know, that's something that's still contested to an extent on both sides. Uh, really interesting is, in, you know, is they share, um, they, they express what, what theological concepts were shared. And for example, in mentioning Sobornos, so the idea that everybody is involved, which is true to an extent. But I think here they're just trying to to attack a little bit the, the traditionalist position, which is um which is like only uh only clerical, because in Rome they've they've really got this uh um this back and forth and this fight right now. And you can see that in their council that they're really doing everything they can to promote the authority of uh Parish council women, uh, they're doing everything they can to promote. Um, basically, they have this fight, and I think it's it's mostly linked to the fact that um, historically and socially, because of mandatory celibacy, the priest wasn't often really included in the in the parish life. Uh, yeah, so maybe less important, but they are still saying, oh, so bonus is interesting, which, you know, yes, it's interesting, but it also has its limits. Uh, it talks about Eucharistic ecclesiology. And we would say that it's it's very important because that's that's the earliest ecclesiology we have. That's from uh, Cyprian of Carthage. That's from especially Ignatius of Antioch, uh, and that's how we explain communion. You know, because the classic Roman system would would be saying that the church is submission to Rome, but here there is this idea that you know the church can communicate with one another through communion. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's important, but I think that this document is propping it up to say, hey, maybe we just try to reestablish communion to make a union before having all this, uh, uh, all this. Um, right, which which is like you said, is prep preparation for twenty twenty five. Going in reverse, right? you know, even, even I think even Benedict sixteen said uh, maybe we should try to solve the problems, you know, theological and ecclesial before communion. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> maybe right. Communion. It shouldn't be done before in the hope that it will be solved, but should be done after when it's done, which is, which is what the plenitude of the communion means. But um, these are two points that kind of stick out. Apart from that, it's just a history of ecumenism. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how can you have a reunion without the issues that separate being solved first? I mean, union presupposes truth and union it presupposes union of, of doctrinal matters and uh you know the papal system is a system that doesn't admit to much flexibility even though these documents are being quote-unquote flexible and making a lot of uh, uh, admissions to our position the nature of the vatican one papal system which has already been set in stone is inflexible so it's great that they're admitting all these things but why are they wanting us to sign on to a system which, a la Vatican I, is completely rigid and completely set in stone? And the trads, uh, you know, quote unquote, that are constantly harping on Vatican I, contradicting Vatican II and so forth, are absolutely correct. The There is a contradiction between what's being admitted in these documents in Vatican I. And I'm sorry, but contradictions at the papal and dogmatic level uh, amount to this system itself being false. You understand that these are ex exclusive systems for Roman Catholics out there. 
So a lot of Roman Catholics would be like, well, look, why can't you guys just, we're being flexible. Why can't you be flexible? Because the nature of your system is such that it is a totalizing system. You can't have Roman Catholicism being true and Vatican I being wrong. You can't have Roman Catholicism being true and Vatican II being wrong. You see, it doesn't, it, it doesn't work that way. If Vatican I or Vatican II or the papal teachings of the last 70 years are wrong or any other papal teachings, then the papal system is wrong. It's that simple. All right, what's next? Anything? No, I think that summarizes uh, part four. So, mm-hmm. yeah, like it even goes further than, than we would in terms of the authority of the church, especially through the Patriarch of Constantinople, but it also mentioned other patriarchs, such as Jerusalem. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you have anything else to say uh, about this part, David. Yeah, I don't really have much else to say. And I think I kind of went over the conclusion to kind of give an idea about this document, but we can go over the conclusion again. And this is kind of the shifty usage of words that I see from Roman Catholic documents quite regularly, because after making all of these admissions, they just ended, well, okay, um, or primacy, which really is supremacy. And yeah. The the kind of and it and its characterization of the Orthodox system as a federation of self-sufficient churches is not merely the adequate understanding. So it basically makes the point that okay, we made all of these admissions, but really the Orthodox Church as it is is also has also these kinds of like lacks these certain things. Whereas we are Orthodox people say, no, we don't. We have primacy and we also have um, you know unity and distinction, so to speak, right? So we have primacy and synodality simultaneously. It's the, or- it's the Roman Catholics that lack synodality in the truest sense because they have supremacy, not merely just primacy. And so I, I see this equivocation between primacy and supremacy by Roman Catholic apologists and by the Roman Catholic Church itself, whereas in the Orthodox Church, we actually do have an understanding of primacy that is distinct from a Roman Catholic understanding. It has its own fleshed out understanding of it. Um, so... What is basically trying to push, and this is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church today, is that essentially they see the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church as two, you know, lungs of the same church, right? At the end of the day, they're basically the same church that are just having a fight between each other at the end of the day. So it's a fight that somehow, for some reason, lasts for a thousand years, and you know, if they fix all of these minor different issues, they might just come back again in union and just become one church in a complete sense. Until then, the the two churches are just one church that are just separate from each other in some sense, right? And in Roman Catholic ecclesiology in the modern day, as promulgated by even various different so-called traditional Roman Catholic apologists, is that the Orthodox Church pretty much has everything. The Orthodox Church has Christ, but as Father Peter Hears kind of has a has a title to one of his videos. If we have Christ, why do we need the Pope? Right. And and at the end of the yeah. day, the Roman Catholic system is one of papal rec- you know, recognizing the Pope as the leader of Christianity. And once you do that, you can just believe in anything that you want, which is why you have all of these Eastern Catholics who believe in Orthodox doctrines, Nestorian doctrines, Monophysite doctrines. And these can so- somehow be part of the Roman Catholic Church because the theology doesn't actually matter. Turns out the only thing that matters is if you kiss the papal feet and that's just it. And this document, in spite of all of the admissions that it makes, it is still at it's still at the end of the day showcases the intention of having power and increasing its own authority of the Roman Catholic Church at the end of the day. 
Yeah, I mean, the document admits that it says synodality and primacy need to be seen as, quote, interrelated, complementary, inseparable realities, and it's quoting the Chieti document. Now, wait a minute. Uh, how many ecclesiologies are there? Does the church have rival ecclesiologies existing within it? No, there's one ecclesiology, and if it's the ecclesiology handed down in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th centuries, that's good enough. Why do we need competing ecclesiologies within the church, right? So in other words, this is, again, admitting that, look, okay, we concede all the points that you guys have been saying, but uh, let's still have the papacy because, uh, look, both of these systems can cohere. Both of them kind of need each other complementary. No, they're not. Vatican I does not have a complementary ecclesiology. And by complementary, I don't mean does Vatican I ever admit that there are other bishops in the church and that they have authority in their diocese? I know it says that. That's not the point. Because the point is, universal supremacy without reference to any other bishops is precisely a non-patristic ecclesiology. It's a non-first millennium ecclesiology. So these are two different systems, a la, that's why there's two different churches, Rome and Orthodoxy. So the idea that they're interrelated and complementary is just like uh, David said, and like Snack said, really just preparing the way for 2025. And, oh, look, see, we can all work together and come up with some new tertium quid church, which has all, all of this smushed together. Yeah, I mean, I mean, canon, that's why I insisted on canon 34 of the apostles, is that we already have this. We already have an understanding of primacy that is not conflicting with our understanding of synodality. And I think that... The point here is to say, hey, uh, you're stressing uh, synodality. We've been stressing primacy. Uh, let, let's let, let's mix. Let's do a little bit of both. No, the orthodox position would be that we have both. We have be, uh, and, and and that's why we have been 